This is Judaism Unbound, episode 18, How We Gather. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rovis. And we're here today in episode 18 of the Judaism Unbound podcast, beginning what we see as an eight-episode arc exploring the phenomenon that's often called Jewish innovation, essentially a set of startups and other projects that are popping up outside of the world of established Jewish institutions that dominated the Jewish community in the 20th century. We're interested in understanding those innovations better and thinking deeply about their significance for the Jewish future. We've decided to start our first four episode series in that arc, we're calling the series New Platforms for Jewish Life, by interviewing a fascinating pair of researchers who are working out of Harvard Divinity School, Casper Turkile and Angie Thurston. They are ministry innovation fellows at Harvard Divinity School and have produced a couple of fascinating projects and documents that we'll link to in our show notes. One is called How We Gather and the other is called Something More. I saw Casper and Angie present at a conference a few months ago and was really fascinated by their work exploring organizations that are serving deep needs of people who are not affiliating with religious organizations or religions. These organizations have some resemblance to religion in fascinating ways that I think can help us start to think about innovations in the Jewish community in new ways. So. We are so excited to have you on, Casper and Angie. It's been a long time coming. I've been excited for a long time about getting you on the show. So thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So I think the best way to start would be just for you to lay out your work for us, give us a bit of a summary and some sense of what you think are the most important discoveries that you've made in your research. Well, I think in many ways, our work is inextricable from our stories because our meandering paths that led us to find each other are, are the same paths that led us to, to be doing what we're doing now. So just as a, a really quick intro to that, uh, we met in Divinity School at Harvard Divinity. And for both of us, that was a very surprising turn of events. For me, I grew up as an artsy kid in Boulder, Colorado, and had a home life that included spirituality, but was never part of an organized religion. And so my journey into spirituality happened largely through the arts. I, I grew up with a mom who was a mural painter and a, a dad who was a computer graphic artist and ended up going to Brown and studying playwriting and moving to New York City to do that. I wrote plays and musicals for six years. And in that process, I just kept finding myself in community with other people trying to do artistic, creative things, but where there was a barrier at, at a certain point to the communities that were forming. And that was both because we had temporal communities that formed around a project and then would come to an end, and because there was a ceiling, it felt like, on the kinds of conversations we could have. There was not much by way of cultural permission to engage questions of meaning and purpose and spirituality. And I started getting really hungry for that when I was in my early 20s living in New York City. And so I just went looking for anywhere that I could find. And because I was unhoused religiously, it didn't even occur to me to look within religious traditions to find that spiritual depth. And so I started looking in secular spaces where people were finding meaningful experiences of belonging and became so fascinated by what I found 
that I ended up pivoting my life and applying to divinity school, I discovered that there was the entire phenomenon being called the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, this whole largely millennial situation of people being unaffiliated religiously or in some way disaffected from from their religious background. And yet there was such a hunger for for meaning and purpose among those people. So it was based on that inquiry that I that I went to HDS with the basic question of how might I be of service in attempting to foster community that brings people together around something other than a shared belief system or a shared creed. And it was at the beginning of Divinity School that I met Casper and and we ended up partnering, but maybe I'll let him fill in a little where he got to. Yeah, well, I grew up in England, so a very different context religiously. You know, about 6% of Brits go to a, a, a religious service on a Sunday is kind of the way that, you know, I try to illustrate the lack of religious power in British culture. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd encountered uh, kind of Anglican Christianity in, in my boarding school days and firmly rejected it uh, as I came out in high school. So I was really my my work was very much in climate activism kind of social justice environmental work um and more and more felt disenchanted with the um uh, kind of the experience of burnout of that and and i looked at the volunteers who were most committed and they often had some sort of religious connection and the leaders who were most inspiring to me had some sort of spiritual practice so the the more i explored that um the the more i started to think about this question of of religion or, or spiritual practice and came to America just to do a public policy degree, which I thought would be a useful badge of status, and then discovered this divinity school on campus where I just immediately got uh, just a sense that this was the place I had to be. And came in with a similar question to Angie of, you know, what does community look like for people like me? And I use the language of atheism to describe myself, but it was it was more um, a sense of just not having anywhere where I fit in. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm, I, you know, I don't use God language, so I'm probably an atheist. Um, obviously, all of that changes once you're in divinity school. So uh, it's different from where I am now. But Angie and I both came in with this question of, yeah, what does community look like for people like us? And the, the biggest community that people would talk about when we asked that question was CrossFit. Um, we love to, to illustrate CrossFit as, as an example of a community that Although totally secular in in what it does, you know, it's it's a working out community. You know, there's fifteen thousand or so uh, CrossFit boxes, as they call their gyms, around the world. Um, nearly four million people engaging with in CrossFit every day. So really, really big numbers. Um, and it's it's so beloved as an example of kind of religious culture and practice taking place in a secular space because of the kind of hugely evangelical following that it has. You know, if you have a friend who does CrossFit, you're going to know about it. Um, so, um, you know, some of the things that really struck us were that the, um, even what happens every day in a CrossFit box, the so-called workout of the day, the WOD, which is posted online. So you can do it at home, you can do it in a box, wherever, is the same uh, across location. So it's a different one every day, but everyone is doing the same workout. So whether you're doing... 10 press-ups and then running around the building and then lifting weights and then, you know, wh whatever the sequence of events is, that kind of ritual is happening in the same place at the same time. So if in a Christian community, people are saying the Lord's Prayer every day, here they're doing three burpees and, and three pull-ups. Right. Um, so there's this kind of liturgical angle to it. Um, but there's also a really interesting community of commitment that's built within within CrossFit. One of our friends locally here lets her other CrossFit friends know when she's going on vacation 
so that they don't call her and hold her accountable and say like, where are you at? It's Thursday morning. You're here every week, you know? Uh, and she in fact met her husband in the CrossFit box. They chose to move closer to the CrossFit box because they're there four or five times a week. You know, this is the center of their social um, life. That's the center of that kind of meaning making of their experience. Um, and, and that particular box is a really intergenerational space. People bring their kids, um, you know, older folks are there. Um, so it really has a strong community. And if someone needs a ride to the hospital or, you know, they're, they're going to get a ride from a friend from CrossFit. And if there's someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, people are going to fundraise to support that person at CrossFit. Um, another friend, when she moved to Ohio, she had her leaving barbecue at CrossFit. So it's, it's not just kind of a fun place, you know, where people work out together. This is really the center of, of people's experience of, of life in many ways. Right. And so what was remarkable is that although CrossFit tends to be something that people have heard of and a, a pretty ready example of a strong community and one that people have strong feelings about, uh, there, as we continued to research the phenomenon of people finding strong bonds outside of religious contexts, we found more and more examples of communities, so much so that we ended up writing a report about it, which we called How We Gather. And just recently, in November, we brought together 50 leaders of various communities, and some of them are in the world of fitness. But what was interesting is that their their functions cross many boundaries. So it might be fitness, it might be the arts, it might be something explicitly about social justice and civic fabric. And no matter what the function, we were finding common themes that ran through all of these communities, and that the leaders of them were actually really intrigued by the possibility of getting to know each other and learn from each other and form a kind of macro community amongst themselves of people who are really committed, especially to the idea of combating the isolation that can be so rampant, especially in the rising generation and seeing what they could do to really foster meaningful community. Did you find in researching these organizations that they were consciously modeling themselves in one way or another on religion? Or do you think that that was sort of unconscious and it's just sort of a natural human impulse to go in certain directions? And and if so, how do you define those directions that are natural to go in? What are the deep human needs that religion or these other organizations are serving? Yeah, we asked ourselves that question every time we picked up the phone to, right. to interview some of these leaders. And it was a real range. You know, some of them were like, yes, I'm reading Joseph Campbell and I'm thinking about ritual design and were very explicit about the connection. Um, and, and I think you can see that in some of the communities that the dinner party, which is a network of people in their twenties and thirties who've experienced significant loss, um, who get together, um, at a, at a table for a potluck conversation. Um, where they can be real with each other about the reality of life after loss. Um, you know, everything from, from grief to anger to being just fine, you know, um, but where that conversation was legitimate. Um, Lennon Flowers, who leads that community, was was very um, conscious of, of that kind of connection. I mean, gathering around a table to eat food in memory of someone, you know, like that's that's not exactly something new. Um, so, but but on the other extremity, you know, when we spoke with um, Patrick, who leads the uh, the Millennial Trains Project, which is a sort of um, fabulous organization that, that brings a group together on a train journey around the country to explore kind of civic renewal. Um, when we said we're calling from Harvard Divinity School, who he said, you know, what the hell do you want? Um, but, uh, you know, after about 15 minutes of talking, he was like, yeah, I guess, you know, more people aren't who come to come to us are not religious, but maybe kind of spiritual and 
Then half an hour into the conversation, he said, well, you know, when the train left the first station, I guess someone gave a blessing to the train. We're like, dude, this is pilgrimage, you know? Um, so the, the, the comfort with that language or frame of religion is, is, is a, is a mixed one, but I think one that we've seen growing increased comfort with, um, Right. We've seen increasing adoption of the language of religion for these communities, even when it was not there necessarily at, at inception. And even in the names like Soul Cycle, I mean, they, the, the word soul is in the brand. Their motto too. is find your soul. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, sometimes you don't have to look too far to find that kind of religious theme. Although one of the questions that, that is occurring to me as you're talking is whether it is that these organizations are sort of similar to religion or, or similar to, or, or could be attracted to a religious impulse, or actually whether there is some deep human impulse and human needs that religion is simply the most well-developed version of that we've had up till now. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that or it's both, or where do you see all that going? Yeah, I mean, what what we really came up with in in this How We Gather report were these six themes that seem to unite the the kind of culture of these organizations. Um, as Angie was saying, even though they are very diverse in what actually happens in the community, and so that those six themes were um, personal transformation. So this sense of wanting to transform who I am, whether that's physically in my body or intellectually, or even you know in terms of spiritual practice or ethically. Um, Social transformation, which speaks to both justice making, but also this sense of creating beauty in the world. Um, so an organization like Group Muse, which brings together classical musicians with people who have space in their living room um, to host a small classical music concert so people can reflect on their life in the presence of beauty in a very kind of intimate setting. Um, thirdly, the idea of purpose finding. So helping people articulate you know, what it is that they want to do with their life. Um, that's, that was a big theme, um, particularly amongst organizations that worked um, often in, in the workplace or co-working spaces. Um, the theme of accountability, which was really a big one. So obviously very clear in the CrossFit world where you have, you know, a whiteboard where you put your goal or the November project, another com uh, community of about 30 cities where, um, you know, if you don't show up on a day that you said you would, they post your picture on the website, uh, you know, so the real, real strong accountability. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, with it, within the religious world, I love thinking about the early Methodists who, you know, if you were a Methodist, you got given a ticket. So you belong to the Methodist community. And if you broke the covenant of, of behavior, you know, if you started drinking again, that ticket would be taken away from you again. So that theme of accountability is definitely uh, deep, deep in the roots of Methodism. Um, and then uh, the theme of creativity. So um, being, you know, participating in creating something, um, a, a playful, uh, playful nature. And then finally, the really overarching one was community. The, the funny example is, is Greg Glassman, the CEO of CrossFit, who self-identifies as a very competitive person, which is not surprising, perhaps. <laughs> and we had given, we had, well, we had noticed that CrossFit seemed to embody community and personal transformation and accountability. We hadn't seen so much of the social transformation or the purpose finding um, or the creativity. And Greg says, you know, well, I'm a competitive man. I want all six badges. So as we talk about competition, I have a question that I'm curious if you've wrestled with. Because as I look at these themes, I'm thinking about other elements of people's lives that might be getting at some of these needs too. And since we're talking about competition, I'm curious about sports fandom. So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The Green Bay Packers are, and I mean this 
legitimately, I would say, are a religion. There are patriarchs, there are holidays, there are life cycle events. And if we were to look at the, the six themes you talk about, I think at least a, a few of them come up when you look at really intense communities of Packer fans. And like when I meet somebody, you know, in a random place uh, here, I live in Rhode Island now, who's a Packers fan, it's an instantaneous connection based on community. Because I think that's part of what CrossFit has is, you know, people who do CrossFit anywhere connect to others, even if they've never met. So have you looked at sports fandom or other, or maybe even like yoga, different kinds of things that people do that might not be institutionalized, but could also parallel religion? Speaking to the questions around what is just basic about human nature, there does seem to be some kind of desire to be part of something more, to understand oneself as part of something greater. And that's an element at play in sports fandom, in Harry Potter fandom, in other kinds of identity relationships. And so I think sports fandom is a real example of, of something that operates kind of like a network that can turn into a real experience of community. It doesn't always, but definitely that experience of, oh, you and I share this common thing, even if we've never met each other, is really real, as you're saying. And so that can lead to some really amazing examples of people forming place-based community around that shared identity. So I was just curious. So I read Religion for Atheists not too long ago, and in many ways, it blew my mind. And it just, it just sounded like some of the ideas that he was talking about in terms of looking at religion as a source of methodologies and paths to apply without God. Um, I think it was a really interesting idea. And it, and it looked like what I, what I understood you to be doing. And I was curious if, if you see what you're doing in line with Alain de, de Botton's work or if it sort of veers away in any ways? I think in many ways, we're totally turned on to the same ideas and, and the same questions. And I think there are some differences, both in that, um, you know, Alan's using the language of religion for atheists pretty intentionally. And, and what's always important to remember is that, you know, the huge majority of nuns, so, so people who are not affiliated with anything, do not think of themselves as atheists. And in fact, you know, experience uh, a higher power or language or, or uh, of God um, who pray, you know, one in five nuns pray every day. So that there's a very, there's a much higher religiosity amongst the nuns than, than, than just atheists. Sure. Atheist agnostics are part of that mix, but um, you know, I think Alan's writing in, a, in the context of Britain where that atheism is much more widespread and the culture of religion is so different. So I always want to just caution before we jump in with, with that pr- proviso. Well, what, part of uh, what relates to what you just talked about uh, in terms of the nuns not necessarily being atheists, one of the reasons why I'm really particularly interested in exploring this question of um, whether what we're trying to do or imagining that we're seeing is the rebuilding of religion, or if actually what people are really looking for is something that would be called something else entirely, right, that um, would meet those same human needs and maybe meet those same human needs anchored in an existing ancient mythic wisdom tradition, right, that actually has a lot of if not the answers, then avenues towards asking the questions in the right way and exploring them. And as we think about how that might come about in the Jewish world, and as we're looking across the Jewish world at what's happening and what's not happening, 
it seems to me that it's not like the YMCA's of the world invented CrossFit and all of a sudden found a technology that was able to connect with millennials that's basically about the same basic thing of, you know, working out and being healthy or whatever. Right? And similarly, the Jewish institutions don't seem to be creating these new ways that are connecting to millennials. I see that a little bit in the evangelical Christian world, to some extent, you could argue. Um, but instead, you see these kind of um, expressions that are all startups, right, that are all uh, coming from the outside. And and I guess I'm curious, as you have explored that about sort of whether that's a, a common thing and whether really um, it sort of tracks with our thinking along the lines of Clayton Christensen's thought that really it can't come from the existing institutions. I'm almost p impossible, possible in the very rare case, but almost impossible. And that, um, and that even though when they start, these new organizations are relatively thin in a lot of those dimensions, they can thicken up over time. And the really good ones somehow are on the trajectory of thicken thickening up over time. And I'm just curious if that uh, tracks with what you've been seeing and whether you actually have seen that in some of these religious, uh, alternative type religious organizations that you've studied in, in something more. Um, the relationship between the center and the edge um, brings up all sorts of uh, uh, pain and shame for the denominations or the or the existing structures because you know people spend their whole professional life serving these institutions serving um you know the jewish people wh whatever it is and it's not working well oh gosh you know um and and that's a and that's a very uh, challenging feeling to be able to turn that into something hopeful and like okay you know, 21 year old innovator who thinks they know it all. Sure. Like, let, let me give you all the resources of my learning and my, my, my craft. That's not easy to do. And there's been a couple of, um, kind of ingredients that we've been looking for amongst leaders in the center. A, that they have a personal relationship with the edge. So it's not necessarily an institutional relationship, but that these are people who they feel comfortable, you know, just giving a call and saying, how, how are you doing? And that kind of mentoring role. But also, secondly, that they've had an experience of a community that looks very different. So I often talk about a Lutheran bishop who spent 10 years in Madagascar uh, on a kind of mission, uh, you know, work, who, who understood that Lutheran theology and, and, and values could be expressed in a totally different context than the Midwest. Earlier on in the conversation, this is shifting gears a little bit, but I, I like can't hold back. I'm really curious to hear from you guys on this point. But um, earlier on, one of you alluded to Harry Potter. And I'm right at the center of the Harry Potter generation. Um, I was about Harry's age as the books came out. Um, a, a very core part of who I am. And I'm curious to hear what you see in Harry Potter. And also specifically, part of what I read is that basically what you've been experimenting with is the idea that it's not about the Bible or the Quran or or the Bhagavad Gita. It's about this methodology of approaching text. And as an experiment for that, you're sort of using Harry Potter as a sacred text. Like, how did this idea come to you? And what have some of the fruits of that labor been? Yeah, so t together with my partner in that project, Vanessa Zoltan, who, who grew up Jewish, but is definitely an atheist Jew, um, who uh, graduated here from, from Harvard Divinity School uh, a couple of years ago. Um, she had been really her, her kind of academic inquiry had been around um, reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text. That's where it started for her. She had a, a, a difficult breakup and turned to Jane and uh, just read that book and kind of read it prayerfully. And with the encouragement of a professor here, really 
started giving that some more rigor and integrity and um, started a little reading group, which I heard about and I thought, wow, this is cool, but I've never read Jane Eyre, nor has anyone else. Well, let's do it with Harry Potter because that, you know, I, I, uh, I was, I read it once as a teenager and I, I, I love the books, but not in a, in a, I wasn't, a, I wasn't in the fandom. Let me put it that way. Um, and then I reread them when I was traveling and while I was in divinity school and thought, Oh my gosh, I'm sitting in these old, you know, uh, everything from like Hebrew Bible classes to new Testament classes, learning, you know, learning how to do, uh, uh, you know, all of these kind of, um, but both the practices of Lectio Divina, for example, but also the, the exegetical work of how to engage with a text like this. And the whole time I just felt like this text isn't mine. And then I read Harry Potter and I was like, this text is mine. And I want to do the same kind of, um, inquiry with, with this text that I'm learning in the classroom. And, you know, just like, uh, there, there was a, a council that decided what was canonical that would go into this bu- book called the Bible. Hey, there's a, uh, a someone in charge at, at Lucas Films who's in charge of deciding what's in the Star Wars canon. So you know th- this kind of it's all it's all created in some way. And so our assumption was that what makes a text sacred is not the text itself; it's a community that declares it so. And um, what matters is is that we read it with rigor and depth. We read it in community, and that that we trust the text not to be perfect, but that the more that we engage with it, the more gifts it will give us. So we started bringing together people every Wednesday evening to for an hour and a half to engage in a set of um, sacred reading practices and conversations to explore what we could learn about our own lives through this text. And it was really a, a, a wonderful experience because we got to have conversations about death, about torture, about, um, you know, because Voldemort breaks his soul into these different pieces uh through through making them into horcruxes we had an hour-long spoiler alert spoiler alert (laughs) sorry guys at this stage you know yeah but we had we had an hour-long conversation about what is a soul and i was like when has a religious community last had an hour-long conversation together about what is a soul i i think that element of having a, a central narrative through which you can mirror your own experience has been a really exciting um uh and and inviting experience for me and our podcast, Reading Harry Potter as a Sacred Text, um, just came out a few weeks ago. And, and what we're doing there is reading chapter by chapter throughout the seven books to really engage with it uh, through those sacred practices to, to find out what we can learn from it uh, uh, in, in our own lives. So, Casper, when I listen to you talk, one of the things that uh, strikes me is that you're not American. And um, it makes me think of... Uh, Tocqueville and his coming to America and looking at it as an outsider and writing Democracy in America and really being able to have some insight on a particularly American approach to this particular area. And it makes me wonder, as a non-American, whether you think you're seeing something about America that's particularly American, whether you think that you have an insight on America from being non-American that Americans tend not to have. Um, we interviewed a while ago Professor Jonathan Sarna, who's a historian at Brandeis University, and he said a, a really uh, wonderful thing about describing what was uniquely American about American Judaism. And one of the things that he's talked about was how prior to the experience in America, there was an understanding that there was only one Jewish community, one Jewish community center for a Jewish community. So there would be the synagogue of London or whatever. But he said... Um, 
that the revolutionary spirit in America fundamentally uh, said to people, if I can break away from Great Britain, why can't I break away from my synagogue? And that actually created this particularly American uh, notion that we can, um, you know, have a lot of smaller synagogues exploring different things. And, and so I'm curious whether you see particularities about uh, America here and particularly, you know, how we're thinking about how that would apply to American Judaism uh, as opposed to religion or Judaism elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the first mistake was to break away from Great Britain. So let's, you know, <laughs> blame blame everything on that. I don't know. You're here. <laughs> well, this is true. So I'm I'm uh, I'm getting married to an American. So uh, you know, I've I've definitely I've definitely chosen where I'm staying. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you for 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 the work that we're doing, uh, and and even I would say the landscape of innovation that we've been learning about is just not replicated in Britain. And it's partly a, a, a cultural attitude towards newness. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I felt so comfortable here is that, you know, if you come up with a new idea in England, the first reaction is usually, well, why? Why would you do that? You know, huh? and here it's like, good for you, you know? <laughs> um, and so there's just, uh, and that's that's echoed in entrepreneurial culture and in, in many different ways. Um, so I think there is both a permission for uh, newness, but also I would say a greater need for new structures of belonging and, and community uh, because it's, you know, there is such a crisis of isolation in this country, particularly, uh, you know, 25% of the American population feels like they have no one that they can turn to. Um, that, that's just horrendous. Um, and I think for, for all its problems, you know, the, the kind of feudal culture of medieval Britain remains still in some way. Um, the, the class system, the, the kind of even the, the, the layout of, of towns and cities, um, there's just, there's just nudges that bring you closer together. The, the sense of, you know, the fact we have a national health service. There's, a, there's a, just a culture of, fair play and equality, which runs deeper in Britain than it does in America. Um, and, you know, but both both have their pro positives and, and, and negatives. But so I, I do think in some ways that I've been lucky to be here because I'm able I'm able to do this work here that just is not possible in the same way in England. And of course, the fact that we have a state church where our monarch is the head of the Church of England um, totally changes religious culture. Um, and, you know, the whole trope of sociology of religion in America, that the kind of competitive market of different particularly in mainline Protestantism, but sounds like perhaps also within Judaism, um, the sense of choicefulness and, and options means that everyone is having to kind of live up to the competition. Well, you know, if, if, if the vicar is good in your town, then great. And if he's bad, then you're stuck with it anyway in England. So that's, that's about the choice that you have. Just to add to that, as an American, so with that caveat, I think that there is really something to this idea that there is a strong cultural positivity around innovation and in promoting, especially right now, entrepreneurship, and that that is something that can manifest in really exciting ways, as we see with so many of these emerging communities, and <laughs> missing the kind of support structure that might exist just by nature so much more fully, perhaps in the UK and elsewhere. There's there is a lot of isolation in the leadership of these communities of people, even in the, in that ironic situation, right, where they're running communities and yet they often feel isolated in that work, as well as I think a, a lack of consideration, not necessarily by any fault of their own on the part of these innovators about going to seek mentorship and specifically spiritual mentorship, spiritual guidance in the work that they're doing. And, and so sometimes 
in the work of leading community, they can come up against really significant challenges and feel, I think, an internal uh, obligation to take it on themselves and to have the answers and to be the entrepreneur in that moment and 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 iterate. But we're really seeing that there's so at, just to re- return to the idea of the gifts that these traditions have to give on the level of individuals in terms of really being figures in people's lives as they're attempting to sort through these sometimes quite grave challenges, as well as thinking on a broader scale about the support structure that exists for innovation, as well as once someone is in a position of leadership, how they build out their team and how they make that a mutual growth process. Dan and I have been having some conversations recently about about language, and and I'm curious to poke your brain. We we, we Dan put Casper on on the spot with the question, so I'll, I'll direct this one at Angie and keep things keep things equal. Um, but so I'm curious. Um, you use the word spiritual a number of times, both of you have, but just now you, you use the word spiritual. And in the Jewish community, I think there's certain levels of comfort with A, the word religious, B, the word spiritual, and C, you know, people who just don't want either. And I'm curious because you have definitely done a lot of work, it seems, to open us to ideas and organizations that are doing spiritual work that's not religious, or at least is religious in a different way. Do you get any pushback from people who just don't even want to use the word spiritual, who who feel like that's not really how they relate to the world? Yes, we do. And I, I would say that the way that manifests often is just uh, a response that that doesn't apply to them. And what that points to on a on a larger scale is just this massive paucity of language at the moment, a real lack of of words that feel up to the job of describing what people are trying to describe. And there's a default to spiritual when often it's instead of saying religious, <laughs> because religious right. is even more baggage laden than spiritual, but spiritual has its own baggage. And often people don't want to identify with either of those words. But what that can yield is that then when people have experiences that perhaps in other contexts would be categorized as spiritual or religious, they have no language for it, nor do they have a sense of permission to explore it and the words with which to do that. And it's a very, it's been for us a fascinating situation and conundrum to uncover is that uh, especially among the unaffiliated, which has been largely where we've been concentrating our energy, there results, and I'll just use this word spiritual again, because that's what I have, uh, this kind of spiritual insecurity on the part of individuals who in general feel a cultural permission to seek success in terms of things like material gain and ideas perhaps around some version of the American dream about what it looks like to to have a fruitful life. But there's aspects of that fruitful life that are not accounted for. And when it comes to exploring bigger questions about their their place in the world and who they want to be. And some of that work that came in around the themes of personal transformation and purpose finding that they, they lack a place to do that. They lack a sense of permission to explore practices that engage with it. And then largely a way to articulate that experience and people to whom to articulate it. I've been shocked in the three years since being in divinity school and the year before that, when I was thinking about it, that Friends I had had for years, sometimes some of my best friends going back to to early childhood, 
started having conversations with me because I would tell them I'm thinking about divinity school. And it was like I opened a faucet that had never been opened before where they said, oh, you are interested in that category? (laughs) Oh, let me tell you about all of these experiences that I've had and all of these interests that I generally don't go around talking about. And that's played out again and again and again over the last four years. But often with this caveat up front of, well, this is kind of embarrassing to say or stumbling around grasping for language to use. And and, yeah, I think just to piggyback on that, for every one person who's like, oh, I wouldn't call this spiritual, there's a whole bunch more who are like, oh, you think it is too? Yeah, I kind of secretly think that about the work that I do. Or, you know, we were at Meetup last week and, and um, Scott, the, the CEO, introduced us to his whole team by saying, you know, the original spirit of Meetup was about A, B, and C. And so, you know, often in the places where we most suspect spirituality is not going to be accepted, such as the workplace in a secular context, actually, it's very, very often used there. Yeah, I think that language question, uh, there is, it's big. And, and, you know, so some of it has to do with making that language available to people for whom it might not have been available before because they had particular associations with it. And, and then I think of the other side is what you talked about, Angie, that I feel really powerfully is this uh, just paucity of language and that there's things that we want to express. Like for me, you know, I don't feel that what I'm looking for is spirituality. Now, I'm 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 absolutely sure that somebody could describe spirituality in a way that I would say, yeah, it's that. But I really don't want to call it that. I I really want to find something else to call it. You know, what is that? Right? It, it, you know, I'm, I think I'm I called it the human impulse a few times, right? But that there are that there's something deep in being a human that we need, that we want, that we have that has most successfully in the past been translated as what we call religion, but that I also believe in some way could be translated into other types of living that we wouldn't necessarily have to call religion or even analogize to religion, and yet they would sort of still play the same function in the life of a human being. How do you address, though, the person who, as soon as they hear that language, they're not even going to stay around long enough to hear it being defined better. I mean, I, I was one of them, so I completely right. agree with you. And and uh, so in some way, it has to be a, a journey, uh, to, right? Ha- there has to be some sort of progression. And we, we've been thinking about, you know, what would a religious community look like if we ran one and, and <laughs> kind of had really a really good time thinking yeah. about the design principles and what it would look like. And, you know, fr- from the beginning, we were very clear that it wouldn't be something static, but it would be, would be something that was, I mean, it really was a journey and that you yeah. entered as a cohort and you went through some shared experiences which then gave you you know appreciation of 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 um certain frames and language that you would then feel comfortable on the next leg of the circuit um and i think you know for for religious communities to think about how to give the gifts that they have they really have to start with that kind of principle of what what speaks to what people have right now and how can you educate and form people so that they end up in a different place. It's so evident that this is an amazingly transitional moment, even by virtue of the language, so much of which right now is negation language, right? Spiritual, but not religious, (laughs) none of the above, unaffiliated, the vast majority of the unaffiliated self-identify as nothing in particular, right? I mean, we're getting down to it with all of this. And so it's, it, feels to us in insofar as we're constantly getting to know exciting examples of 
forming communities and lots of positive things, it seems like a real opening, a real opportunity for, for some creative thinking about this. And absolutely, it will take some time for, for a lot of people, I think, and some real work to think about whether words like religion are going to be in, in certain cases, salvageable as words that feel accurate to describe the experience people have. It's interesting because as I was listening to you, uh, one one thing that you said, uh, you know, what would a religious community look like if we were running it? What went through my head was that if there were a religious community that you were running, I would want to join it. And then what ran through my head was, but you're in Boston and I'm in Chicago. And then what ran through my head was, but we're having this conversation right now and I'm actually pretty moved by it. So I'm wondering how you think about the internet and and where the internet takes us involved with all of this, because you do also focus on community and gathering. And I'm curious if there's a tension there, or if you think about resolving it. We love the principle, use the internet to get off the internet, which, which comes from meetup, which I think is lovely. But I really don't want to negate some of the very powerful communities that are online. I mean, um, Buddhist Geeks is a, is a classic community for, for this, where you know, a whole bunch of people who are interested in the intersection of Buddhism and technology, um, literally will, you know, before they, before they start their meditation practice, will will post the Google hangout link in the, in the forum and say, anyone who wants to join me in 10 minutes, I'm going to sit for half an hour. And so we'll be sitting with people around the world via Google hangout, um, in the, in this sense of being part of this broader community and in, in my individual practice. Um, so there are, there are some lovely, uh, you know, ton of other examples that really use the online platform as their as their main engagement place and at the same time i think to really go deep you have you have to be in the same location and i think that the whole move towards co-housing and co-working speaks to that hunger to be together uh, despite the difficulties but i know that angie loves lo angie's a real futurist on the inside so the internet is, is really her thing my reaction a little bit to that casper and i'm interested in what your response is angie that um that I think that um, you have to think fourth dimensionally and that what you said might be true of where we are today. But um, if you think about where we were 10 years ago compared to where we are today, we never could have had this podcast. And where are we going to be in 10 years? And is it possible that with virtual reality, we are actually opening up a new vista that would make it possible to... If you can uh, give me a back rub through virtual reality, then I'm in. That's, that's <laughs> my standard. What becomes different when we remove some of the dichotomy between being online and offline, because right now they do still feel very different experientially. And if the experience of being with others virtually increasingly resembles the experience of being with others in real life, then there's some potential for increased depth to the experience of community that could come about through, through virtual technology. I, I become as a as an armchair futurist, I become frustrated by how far away we are sometimes from from actualizing that technology in terms of the lived experience of of many many people. But of course, when you have Facebook buying Oculus for two billion and doing what they do, you know who's to say it could be sooner than we think. So, in um, summary, I wanted to just check before we said goodbye whether there was anything that we didn't ask or didn't cover that you think we should have. I just give a huge props to, to the conversations you're having. I think this is such a time of opportunity and creativity and it, it demands exactly what you're doing. Um, you know, and, and really to say to people, you know, if you, if you long for that kind of Shabbat gathering, which you, you can't find in your area, like start it. Um, it's, it's really, this is such a time of, of, um, of invitation. 
in a, in a couple of weeks, I'll be hosting my midsummer gathering. Now it's in its second year where we go camp for a night, uh, on, on a farm and read a midsummer night's dream and sing songs around the campfire and, um, you know, just have, just have a fabulous evening together. And it, I think just, just having permission to start kind of crazy ideas. Some of them will work. Some of them won't, but, um, give it a go. Like, you know, the, the world needs it. So go for it. Yeah, I would just echo that. There is such an opening and such a yearning. And given that we have gotten to know this landscape better and better over the last couple of years, I've increasingly found myself in a position where people will come to me and ask, okay, here's my profile. Here's who I am. Where should I go? <laughs> what are my communities? And I so long to have really robust, satisfying answers for those people. And whether or not I have the answers, I long for them to have those life-giving communities that are going to help them become the best versions of themselves in the ways that, that they really yearn to. So it, it is definitely not only an opening, but I think a, a real imperative at this moment that there is a deep-seated need and there's there's real room to, to fill it. Well, thank you so much to both of you, Angie and Casper. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more from Casper to Kyle and Angie Thurston, we definitely encourage you to read their two monographs. They're fantastic and they're called How We Gather and Something More. And we're featuring them in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at JudaismUnbound.com. And as always, if you have any thoughts or feedback, please be in touch with us on our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound, uh, on our website, JudaismUnbound.com, or via email at lex at nextyearsfuture.org or dan at nextyearsfuture.org. So with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.